Well, good morning, and welcome again uh, from Hebron with our uh, audience of about three. Um, good to join you in your home this morning, and we trust that this service, uh, the Word of God and the message, uh, proves to be a message of comfort and instruction uh, to your soul uh, today in these difficult times. I think you will find it helpful uh, to have your Bible open in front of you as we go down this passage today. I want you to notice, first of all, uh, that the death of Jesus took place on the Jewish day of preparation. That's mentioned in verse 31 and 42, the two verses that kind of bookend uh, the section. It was called the day of preparation uh, because it was the day before the Sabbath day. Um, this was this was Friday, and it wasn't just any Friday. It was it was Passover Friday, um, and so it was a high day, and the the people prepared themselves prepared themselves for this special day, and that didn't just mean that um, you know they got. They got everything ready in their houses. Um, they had the food prepared, just like Christmas time and all the busyness of, of, of preparing for a day like that. It was, it was a spiritual preparation. They wanted to make sure that they were in the correct frame of mind for this so that they could reflect and think and pause and remember and just appreciate the importance of this special day. They, they prepared themselves for it. And that's what lies behind this request that the Jews make uh, to Pilate the governor. Because it's the preparation day, because this special Sabbath uh, is, is about to take place, they say, take the bodies down from, from off the cross. Usually the bodies were left on the cross for a long period of time. Um, and so they make this this request. And uh, that's what lies behind this particular point. You see, the Jews said that, uh, and this is recorded in their law, you'll read this in the book of Deuteronomy 21, that if somebody, because of a, a crime, was hanged on a tree, they weren't allowed to stay overnight. They had to be cut down because everyone who was hanged on a tree uh, was was cursed. And so that's what really lay behind part of the request. Preparation, spiritual preparation, of course, is an important thing. You remember in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about preparing for partaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, you know, let a person examine themselves. Let there be a degree of spiritual thought and introspection and preparation Before that happens, in another place, Jesus said, you know, if you're about to bring your gift to God and you you remember that you've got something against your brother, well, go and put that right, first of all, and and prepare things properly, and then go and offer your your gift uh, before God. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about preparing our minds for action. In fact, the literal sense of that is to, to gird up the loins of your, of your mind. These long, long flowing, um, clothes that they used to wear were no good for a race. Uh, they would fall flat on their faces, tripping over it. Uh, they had to prepare themselves by getting everything tucked in, girded up, fastened in, 
absolute preparation for what was about to take place. And, and that's the idea for us, you know, as far as spiritual preparation is concerned. Not to be casual, not to be lackadaisical, uh, but uh, rather than being blasé about our spiritual condition, uh, to just bring everything in, to, to be a little bit tighter and firmer and more compact as far as our thinking is concerned. And there is no better way to do that than to have a day of preparation like this, to think about Christ and his death and the lessons that come to us today. There are three main ones that come from the aftermath, if you like, of the death of Christ in this passage And as we reflect and meditate on that, I think it is the best preparation to uh, preparing our our minds for active service uh, as far as Christ is concerned uh, and living uh, for him. I would like to point out, however, that there is a terrible hypocrisy about this day of preparation. You know, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, we have to prepare for this special high day. But basically what they're saying is, we want you to 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 bring their death a bit quicker. We want you to kill these guys before the day is out, you know, by breaking their legs, uh, you know, so that that things will be fine tomorrow. And, you know, religion can be like that. Cold, dead religion is a terribly dangerous thing. And it's something that we do well just to really be warned about and to guard ourselves from, that our lives are not just about cold, dead religion, but that Christ is at the heart of that, that affects not just externals, but it affects our heart and what is really important and central uh, to us. So let's, let's, let's look at this then in a little bit more uh, detail. So the first thing is that um, there was this request and the instruction that came from Pilate that the legs of the three upon the cross, including Christ, might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, as I said earlier, uh, death by crucifixion usually took a long time. In fact, it was designed to take a long time. I mean, that was part of the cruelty of the whole thing, that often men were on these crosses for days. It was a slow, deliberately slow and cruel death that they were uh, afflicted with. And um, the whole idea about breaking their legs, about getting the soldiers to walk up and with a heavy mallet to, to, to smash the legs of the men of the cro- on the cross... Um, that would bring about death more quickly. And the way that happened was not be, not because of pain, not because of, of blood loss, but because what happened was, as they were on the cross and uh, their strength waned, that they would find it difficult to breathe. And they would often push up from their legs that, that were impaled upon the cross and kind of anchor their chest cage so that they could breathe more easily. And by smashing their legs, then that was unable to happen. And so they they died basically from asphyxiation, difficulty breathing more than anything else. Now, the fact that when they came to Jesus and they found that he was dead already was, was extremely surprising for these men. I mean, he had only been on the cross for six hours, from nine o'clock 
until three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he died at the ninth hour. They compute things from six in the morning as far as their evaluation is concerned. And as we learned last week, this was because nobody took his life from him. He had power to lay that down. And he had power to, to take his life up again. He dismissed his own spirit. And so because he was dead already, they didn't break his legs even although that had been the direct command from Pilate. And they didn't realize the significance of this. They had absolutely no idea that they were fulfilling Scripture by doing this. So, I mean, for generations on Passover day, which this was, scrupulously recorded away back in Exodus 12, as the Passover meal was being prepared... They were always specifically told that the bones of the lamb had not to be broken as they both prepared the meal and as they ate the meal. And they did that for generations, year after year. Not a bone of it was to be broken. I'm sure they must have thought, well, what's the whole point of this? Well, this is the point of it. Because here now is Christ the ultimate, the true Passover lamb, the great lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he is, a lamb not just for a household or even a lamb for a nation, not a lamb that would save the firstborn from their family as had taken place away in Egypt all those years ago, but here is the lamb slain for the sin of the world. And that is, that is the import of what takes place here at this time. That people can be saved not from the slavery of the death camps of Egypt, but slaved from the terrible bondage and slavery that sin and all its poison and corruption inflicts upon our world and upon our lives. There is another side to this as well. And the, the most direct quote that you will find here uh, when it says not one of his bones will be broken is actually taken from Psalm number 34, a Psalm of David. And the idea there is this, that when you look upon Christ in the, on the cross, that yes, he is bruised and he is bloodied, but he is unbroken. His skin is torn, his side will be pierced, his hands and feet will be pierced, but no bones will be broken. And the idea behind that is this, <clears throat> that in the tremendous um, conflict that is taking place here, the head of the serpent, to quote Genesis 3, is splintered, is shattered, is crushed. The heel of, of Christ, the seed of the woman, is bruised, but he is victorious. Nothing of him is broken. It talks to us about the ultimate triumph and victory of Christ. He is not broken. It is Satan that's broken. Not a bone of his is broken. Now, just as a little aside here, uh, can I just point out to you a mistake that is commonly made when we um, observe the Lord's Supper? When people often will say, this is my body which is broken for you. If you look at it carefully, Christ didn't say that. He said, this is my body given for you, or this is my body 
for you instead of you. We break the bread, but that's just for convenience so we can distribute it among people. Christ was not broken. It particularly says that here. The second point, however, is the piercing of the side of Christ. One of the soldiers does something that he has not been instructed to do. Um, He pierces the side of Christ. It was what we might call a cheap shot. It It was a horrible thing to do. A man that he already knows is dead, and he pierces, he stabs the dead body. No point at all in doing that. Why would you do that? And yet, Scripture is being fulfilled. Specifically, it's the book of Zechariah, chapter 12 and verse 10, which says this, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. This, of course, refers to a coming day when Christ will return again, and those who see him as he returns, the one whom they have pierced will mourn for him. And what we have here, as one commentator puts it really rather well, is in the piercing of the side of Christ, in that crimson flow, there comes cleansing for crimson sin. And there's something that is symbolic in this. I mean, John, who witnesses it and testifies about it, and of course it's something that is a testimony to the fact that Christ actually did die. He mentions it again several times in his first letter uh, as well. And there is something that is, is symbolic in this. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, we sang that hymn there, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. Uh, one of the lines says, uh, Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from God's wrath and, and, and power. And so what we have is we have, we have the, the blood of Christ that deals with atonement. It deals with the wrath of God against sin. The price is paid. And yet there is, at the other hand, there is cleansing from the water that flows. And both of these things, I think, symbolically are here for us in what happens at the piercing of the side uh, of Christ. I don't know if this is sung in in our Sunday school, but certainly when I grew up, we used to sing this thing, and I I never really knew what it it referred to. It was uh, uh, the actions deep and wide. Uh, there is a fountain that's flowing uh, deep and wide, and we used to do all the actions in, in, in synchrony. Uh, and of course, as you think about it, that refers to here. In fact, if you go back to Zechariah and follow into chapter 13 and verse 1, um, it goes on to say, And a fountain shall be opened in that day for cleansing. And, and this is like a fountain that has been opened. The message that comes from the outpouring of the blood and water to deal with God's wrath against sin and to provide cleansing as well as atonement, it's not a limited small thing. It's a vast fountain that has been opened up for cleansing for the world of sinners. I remember reading uh, about David Livingston 
discovering the Victoria Falls. They said he was the first white man to, to, to see the Victoria Falls. And, um, you know, in, in the local language, it's called the smoke that thunders for obvious reasons. Um, I remember the first time I saw the Victoria Falls, and it just goes on as far as the eye can see. A vast cataract, a tremendous waterfall, uh, enormous volumes of water just pounding over the top of this with all the spray uh, coming back up again and soaking you. And, and it's, it's a, that's a vast fountain. That's the kind of thing that is being talked about. As one of the other hymns puts it, you know, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I mean, to, to people, you know, who are not Christians, thinking about language, listening to language like that, it sounds bizarre to them. But, but this is biblical language. The wonderful fountain that has been opened up for cleansing for us. You know, and so there is this vast expanse of the sufficiency of the death of Christ to deal with my sin and to cleanse me. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, reading this book about the, the Nuremberg trials, uh, when the Nazi criminals were eventually uh, convicted, on, on the night they were to be executed, um, uh, Henry Gericke, the chaplain, visited each one of the men. The first that was meant to be hanged was uh, Hermann Goring, but he committed suicide. So the next man in line was Hitler's uh, foreign minister, a man called Ernst von Ribbentrop. And uh, Gericke met with him in his cell before the walk uh, to the gymnasium where the execution was to take place. And as he sat with him in his cell, Ribbentrop said this. He said, I put all my trust in the blood of the Lamb who died to take away the sin of the world. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you think, you know, Nazi war criminals, you know. But the blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses for all sin. And that is the message of the gospel that we can freely and unashamedly present uh, as the good news to our world today. Now, the final point is this. This day of preparation became a day of decision. And in particular, it was a day of decision for Joseph of Arimathea and for, and for Nicodemus. Uh, these men are described as being secret disciples, fearful disciples. They, they lived in the shadows they had a faith in Christ, but they kept it to themselves. They were both members of the Jewish ruling council. They were, they were both part of the Sanhedrin. And, and they had spoken up, but they had been kind of slapped down in the past. And we know that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, you know, because of fear. And things were all done in the quiet. But now, decisions are made. Decision to, to step out of the shadows and to step into the spotlight, into the glare 
of public witness and association with Christ as they actually go to Pilate and they make requests for the body and they walk up Calvary's hill and they take the body of Christ down from the cross with everybody looking on and everybody seeing uh, what they're doing and, and, and what they stand for. And Christ is wrapped and he's, he's taken down and he's, and he's put in Joseph's new tomb in the garden that is near. Now, there is something that is, um, you know, technically important here. Uh, and it's this, that, you know, as I said earlier, as far as time scale is concerned, you know, the next day starts at 6 p.m. As, as far as Jewish reckoning is concerned. So they actually only had three hours to do this. You know, from 3 o'clock until 6 p.m. And that had to fit in, you see, with Jonah's prophecy that Jesus had mentioned. As uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, you know, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth. And so he had to be there in the tomb before the next day started for that to take place. So it's, it's very interesting to see the, the precision of Scripture as far as this is concerned. And, and talking about precision, of course, this uh, it meets what Isaiah 53 prophesied, that although they, they had planned that he was going to be with the wicked in his death, he was with the rich man in his death. You check that up in Isaiah 53. And here is the rich man. God has him ready just for this moment. And he brings him out. And he's there. And he answers the call just at this particular uh, time. Now, I always associate this incident with a passage of Scripture that I'd like to read with you. And if, if you could turn with, with me to it, I think you'll, you'll see the whole significance of it. It's in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, reads like this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here, we have no lasting, we have no continuing city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, what, what happened back in Jewish times was that the sin offering, it was taken outside the community, outside the boundaries of the camp of the people. And in that outside unclean place, you know, that's where it was, the body was taken and burned. And there is a, a link, there is a connection here. That was symbolic, it was prophetic of what was to happen with Christ. There is a green hill far away, outside a city wall. Calvary was outside the camp, outside the gate. They took Christ there. And the symbolism of that is what Joseph and Nicodemus did. They went to Christ outside the gate, prepared to bear the reproach, the shame that Christ himself bore. And that's what has been written to these Hebrew Christians. You know, step outside, be an outsider. Be prepared to be an outsider, but stand with Christ in that place. This is not your city. You seek a city that is to come. 
And that is the message that comes to us today. The day of preparation is a day of decision. So, we've thought about the aftermath of of Christ's death. How his, his bones were not broken. How his side was pierced. The significance of his burial. And surely for us today, this has to be a moment, not just of of preparation of heart as we as we view Christ as we think again about that wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died everything that's tied up with that all that we've thought about this morning it helps to prepare our minds for action and that action surely again has to be decision to go to Christ outside the camp bearing his reproach. Now, maybe for some that will be for the very first time that decision is made. And maybe for others of us, it is to review and to renew our vows of alignment and of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the cross, the message of redeeming grace and of triumph over sin and of evil to say that I have decided to follow Jesus And that I trust in his redeeming blood. That wonderful fountain that has been opened up for cleansing. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for the cross of Christ. And all that it means. The wonderful message that comes clearly from your word. We pray that that message, again as we reflect upon it. We find ourselves trusting wholeheartedly in the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we pray for for all who've listened today. We pray a sense of your comfort, the reality of your presence, your great promises will sustain and strengthen our hearts. Help us to look to Christ and help us to trust in his, his redeeming grace as we ask in his name. Amen. So thank you for being with us today. And may God bless you and your family in this coming week. And may we reflect upon our Lord Jesus and his death upon the cross. God bless you.